Everyone needs an estate plan. That's why FindLaw worked with lawyers from across the country and employed Thomson Reuters' industry-leading form automation technology to create affordable, customizable, do-it-yourself estate planning documents. Forms available include a last will and testament, healthcare directive and living will, and financial power of attorney. You can purchase a form individually, or you can bundle all three for a 10% discount. Both individual and couples packages are available. FindLaw's estate planning forms are backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can update your finished estate plan for free for up to a year after purchase. There is no time like the present to start estate planning and get peace of mind, especially when you can do it from the comfort of home and at a fraction of the cost of going to an attorney. To get started, head to findlaw.com, and at the top of the page, click on Legal Forms and Services. Hello and welcome to Fine Laws Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. Today is a sort of special episode with all four of your hosts. I'm Baby Method, joined by Andy Leonetti. Yo. Laura Tammy. Hello. And Joe Fabish. Hey, we're all here. It's a party. We got the whole peanut gallery because... Uh, <laughs> For this week and next, we're doing a sort of special, not so breaking news, but like earth shattering news, two part series talking broadly about abortion jurisprudence in general in the context of the SCOTUS leak, which you guys will all be familiar with by now. I, I don't know what to call that leaked opinion. I was thinking the Dobbs judgment majority, but that might be too close to us being DJM. <laughs> so maybe that, yeah. I'll just the Alik. How about Samuel Alikto? I oh, oh my god, <laughs> oh, god no. Andy. I, I was trying to avoid just calling it like the Alito opinion because it's not. Yeah. just it's not just about one person. It's right. I guess fire. maybe just yeah, maybe just the leaked opinion. Or yeah, the, I'll call it the Dobbs yeah. leak. Yeah, the shorthand is just the draft <laughs> opinion. Yeah. Is, is how people have been referring to it in the media. So, But okay. you all know what we're talking about. <laughs> if you don't know by now, then you're probably not listening to us anyway. <laughs> exactly. Most, most likely. And so I think Joe has some... Uh, Joe, Joe needs to save us from ourselves here before we, get, <laughs> before, before we get going. Obviously, this is an extremely personal and profound issue for a lot of people. So... Our goal here isn't to change anyone's mind. We're not going to be arguing policy. Mm -hmm. Instead, we're just hoping to give everybody, regardless of their personal beliefs and opinions, a deeper understanding of the law. So we're really going to be focused on the actual jurisprudence, like Veda, he said. Um, we understand and respect that everybody has a lot of different opinions on this issue. So our job today is not to convince anyone of anything and none of us are running for office so we'll just have a discussion <laughs> not about yet. it not yet anyway yeah not Leonetti yet 2028 maybe we'll see that's the military <laughs> that's my military junta plan so, <laughs> I, so i won't actually be running for anything i'll just be just i'll just be taking well, in the meanwhile, uh, we will try to just be as accurate as possible when we summarize these positions. We'll talk about both majority opinions and dissents. Uh, when we talk about those opinions, we're not necessarily endorsing or refuting them. We're just explaining the way things are. 
again, our goal is to give more information. It's not to say this was wrong, this was right. Uh, we'll certainly mm-hmm. discuss it. And as you know, we do often have opinions on things. Mm-hmm. Um, so while to the greatest extent possible, we'll be separating our own opinions from what the law says, if you feel listening at home that we're being a little too transparent and you feel like we're letting our personal views show through, uh, just please note that those are our own personal opinions. Mm-hmm. They're not in any way mm-hmm. reflective of Fine Law, the organization, or any employees at Fine Law. So we shouldn't give our boss's email address here for them to contact, <laughs> yeah. no, I contact them personally? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Channel your complaints to our boss. <laughs> oh, God. We're just going to dox him. <laughs> <laughs> I think those are my my disclaimers and caveats. Uh, does anybody have anything else they want to mention before we get started? Let's rock and roll. Yeah, I think let's do it. Okay, so I don't know if our listeners have read the Alito opinion or not. No, but, they have uh, not. Oh, man. <laughs> and I'm not sure that it's going to be, you know, a great fun weekend light reading. It's not a beach read, y'all. Um, mm-hmm. But he does talk a lot about what our nation's history says about abortion and even history predating our nation. Mm -hmm. The Rope opinion itself also talks a lot about the ancient practice of abortion. And so, like, you might wonder what was the tradition of abortion from way back when up until recently in pre-Roe. Honestly, <laughs> we're not historians, and even historians... Speak for yourself, Betahe. I am more <laughs> a time-traveling lawyer. How dare you? <laughs> we're time travelers, correct. Not historians, yeah. though. Um, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but even if we do go into our beloved Wayback Machine, like, different folks, different courts, justices, and historians seem to disagree about what exactly the norm was when. Like, Alito Mm -hmm. calls out the Roe Court for getting history wrong. The Roe Court seems to conclude overall that abortion was never established as a true common law crime, um, or it was certainly lenient before what was called quickening, which is, I think, when the fetus starts to, like, move around. Yeah, it's the the first time that the the person who's pregnant can feel the, Mm -hmm. the movement of the fetus, yeah. Yeah, and so the Roe Court says that at common law, at the time of the adoption of our Constitution and throughout the major portion of the 19th century, abortion was viewed with less disfavor than under most American statutes currently in effect. In other words, women had more reproductive rights back in certain times throughout history than they even do today. And Also, it notes that earlier abortion restrictions were based on different medical realities. It was more dangerous back throughout history for the mother to get an abortion, and therefore there was arguably a greater interest in protecting the life of the mother by restricting abortions. But regardless of how you what what the history actually says, why do we care about history? And why does the Supreme Court seem to care? Why is it seem to put so much weight on analyzing history in making its decision. Well, I, I think part of it, especially based on what, what Alito is arguing, is this part of it seems to be this sort of originalist argument of, okay, mm-hmm. what, what were people thinking, say, when the 14th Amendment was passed? Is, there, mm-hmm. is it possible that they contemplated a, a privacy right that would include abortion under the 14th Amendment? His argument mm-hmm. is that it does not, but we can, we can get more into that. A little bit later. There's also a question in Alito's mind. 
of what it means when we define liberty. And mm. for, for him, uh, it's important when defining liberty under substantive due process to look at the nation's history because it has to be, in his words, deeply embedded mm -hmm. in our values and traditions. And so that's why he spends a long time looking at the past to try to determine as kind of a whole country, how have we historically treated this? And is this deeply rooted in our in our nation's history to the extent that it's protected under the 14th Amendment? Mm -hmm. Could you explain the term to our listeners, Joe, because you called Sam Alito an originalist. And could you just kind of briefly tell people the difference between that and textualists? Well, they're very similar. An originalist looks at what the circumstances were surrounding the passage of a particular law or bill and uses that to determine what the legislatures were thinking at the time they passed. It's a way of finding intent. So he wants to look back and say, okay, what were these guys, and they were usually guys, what were these guys thinking <laughs> um, when they passed it? And would they consider such and such a right to have okay. been part of this? A textualist looks Is as Ron you would. Paul. <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, and and uh, Justice Gorsuch is kind okay. of a, mm -hmm. the standard bearer for textualism nowadays. Uh, so a textualist would look directly at what, we in the legal field call the four corners. So just mm -hmm. kind of looking at the document itself and saying, what does the text itself say? And we're not going to look at any outside circumstances. We're just going to say, what does it say? And we'll do that. It's not dissimilar from contracts law, four corners approach. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, precisely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And it becomes a problem. I, oof. I'm already letting my opinion show, but um, <laughs> it could potentially become an issue if you consider the fact that a lot of different rights, like slaves' rights, like the freedom from slavery and civil rights, are not found in the literal text of the Constitution, nor were they the founding fathers' intent, which would be an originalist point of view taken to the extreme. But yeah, in answering that question, we might have gotten off track a little bit. So, Laura, <laughs> speaking of originalism, I know you're taking a look at, at history for us. So could you give us a little background about, about the history of these cases? Make it yeah. exciting history, please. I, I, will, I will do my best. And, and I'm doing sort of a broad strokes mm -hmm. um, history of abortion regulation in the United States. And... The, the main thing that I wanted to bring up was what the state of abortion regulation was at the time that Roe v. Wade was decided. Mm -hmm. But first, I want to step back a little bit and talk a bit about before that. So as Veda, he talked about earlier, when the United States was first founded and for many years after, abortion was legal. Under British common law, abortions performed prior to this, yeah, this quickening that they refer to which the best explanation of it is just the per the first perceptible movement of the fetus, which is usually around four months. That was generally legal. And then when we get to the mid-1800s, that's when different states in the U.S. start to outlaw abortion, beginning with Massachusetts. That was the first state to criminalize abortion. And by the turn of the century, most states only allowed abortion when the mother's life would be endangered if they carried the pregnancy to term. So then that was sort of the state of things for about 60-ish years. 
Then we start getting into the 1960s and 70s, where states begin to roll back those strict abortion laws. And this sets us up for Roe v. Wade. So, for example, in 1962, the American Law Institute published the Model Penal Code on Abortion, and it called for abortion to be legal where a pregnant person's life or health is at risk, or when the pregnancy resulted from rape or incest, or if the fetus had a severe defect. And states began adopting that as part of their their own state regulations. In 1967, Colorado was the first state to adopt the model code. And by 1972, just before the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade, 13 states had adopted statutes based on that American Law Institute recommendation, and four had completely repealed their anti-abortion laws. So that's part of the reason why Roe herself was chosen. The history of Jane Roe, who's, you know, late, we now know is Norma McCorvey. Her life is a very interesting story and how she became sort of the poster child for this case is really interesting. Like we could do a whole episode just on, on that. But one of the reasons why she was chosen to be Jane Roe is because she tried to get an abortion in Texas where, where abortion was still illegal. Oh, I guess a lot of folks might not know, because the, the name of the case is Roe v. Wade, of course, mm-hmm. a pseudonym, but there was a, a companion case in my state of Georgia, hello, uh, mm-hmm. called a different pseudonym Doe. Um, mm-hmm. I guess she was Jane Doe. Um, and it was basically a very identical uh, state law with similar restrictions um, on, on abortion. But for purposes of standing, Doe, as well as Jane Rose Doctor, who was a, a third plaintiff, three different plaintiff, like sort of companion cases. We got we got Doe from Georgia, we got Jane Rose Doctor, who is independently trying to sue the state, saying, hey, you can't because because it, it, he had he was being criminally prosecuted for providing the abortions. Mm-hmm. And so he was suing on behalf of himself. Um the Roe court decided, I think, not to give Doe any standing at all because she wasn't pregnant. She just wanted to have marital relations, sexual intercourse without mm-hmm. future repercussions because she had some health conditions that didn't let her, um, in which she couldn't have a baby safely and healthily, and mm-hmm. she also couldn't be on con- contraception. But but the Roe court, I think, Laura, uh, didn't let either of them have standing. Is that right? Right. And, and yeah, the state actually, the states did challenge standing in all three of those cases. And as you're sort of alluding to the, yeah, two of them were dismissed for not having standing because their injury, you have to have an injury if you're going to sue. And um, in two of the three cases, the Supreme Court found that it was too speculative. So it's like you're talking about where, yeah, this person um, is not, you know, is not pregnant. We don't know if they're going to get pregnant. And it was the same with with the doctor. He hadn't been, as far as I know, hadn't been criminally prosecuted or wasn't currently facing criminal prosecution. So, so basically, Jane Doe would have had to get pregnant mm-hmm. with a, with Correct. a high with a high risk pregnancy. Yep. Yeah. To be able yeah. to yeah. sue and then allow yeah. that to work its way through the appellate system. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they, since they they did they decided that two of the three it was too speculative. But it's interesting because. On the surface, it seems like Roe should have also been sort of speculative at that point, because um, by the time this case reached the Supreme Court, just because, you know, the the gestation time for a human is nine months and it takes a lot longer than that for a case to go all the way through the courts to the Supreme Court. So 
one of the things that the state of Texas was arguing was that she no longer had standing because by the time they got to the Supreme Court, she was no longer pregnant. She had had that baby. But the Supreme Court did note that in cases like this where the issue sort of surrounds pregnancy, we're never going to be able to escape the fact that that's a limited amount of time. That's nine months. Because it's capable of repetition yet evading review. Is that exactly? The yep, exactly. So that's how we sort of get around that standing issue in her case. Yeah, I just want to make sure that we clarify for listeners who might not be familiar with how the Supreme Court works. When we talk about standing, and Laura, you mentioned this briefly, but federal appellate courts have to decide two things. Not just anyone can sue at any time. You have to have Mm -hmm. standing, which means that you're a person who is injured by the law or some action. And so Mm -hmm. that's what we're talking about when we say standing. When we talk about Mm -hmm. mootness, mootness is a different standard Mm -hmm. where if a case is not live anymore like the the mm-hmm. supreme court only only does live controversies it doesn't take things that have already been resolved because federal appellate courts have limited time so when we talk yeah. about standing and mootness we're not even talking about the merits of the case so we're not talking yeah. about all of the things that we're going to get into later we're just talking about whether Jane Doe and Jane Roe had the ability to even bring this case before the supreme court so I got yeah now now that we've taken care of some of the procedural issues that the Roe v Wade decision mm-hmm. um, dealt with should we dig into the, the the more meaty parts of it yeah so in Roe v Wade Supreme Court decided two important things one that the United States Constitution provides a fundamental right to privacy that protects mm-hmm. a person's right to choose whether to have an abortion and two that the abortion right is not absolute it must be balanced against the government's interests in protecting health and prenatal life. So that is the holding of this case. Now, as we talked about before we started recording, this opinion says a lot of things that we're going to talk about. It's a very long opinion and it's a very interesting one. It says a lot of things, but it all boils down to those are the two things that were like legally binding out of this case. Yeah. And and that's a great point because, I mean, this opinion, as you said, is a lot more complicated than people think. Honestly, I think it's a decision worth reading or at least skimming for our listeners who haven't. But, you know, what we want to focus on is what the decision stood for versus what it said. Because these, as lawyers will know, these are two different things. And I'm looking mm. at you one L's out there. This is some <laughs> first semester stuff. Hope y'all got your rainbow pack of highlighters. <laughs> Did you guys do that Ooh. when you read opinions in law school? Oh, yeah. You'd like color code them for for ease of reference. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, an appellate court opinion or a SCOTUS holding or any appellate court opinion is like 60% dicta or reasoning and a bunch mm-hmm. of other stuff and like 2% holding. So like right. one little orange sliver. So like a lot of people will talk about what Roe or Casey or a lot of these cases say, but they're not binding except for the holding. Mm-hmm. And again, Laura, what was the only thing that was binding on Roe? <laughs> so, one, the Constitution provides a fundamental right to privacy that includes the right to choose to have an abortion. Two, the abortion right is not absolute. States can regulate and do have an interest in regulating abortion in ways that protect the health of people who get pregnant and prenatal life. So the question that I have, where in the Constitution... Mm-hmm. Does that right yep. come from? 
So that seems to be the issue that everybody is talking about. Yeah, and one thing I think Alito does get right in the Dobbs leak is when he says that the Roe decision, quote, expressed the feeling that the 14th Amendment was the provision that did the work, but its message seemed to be that the abortion right could be found somewhere in the Constitution and that specifying its exact location was not of paramount importance, unquote. Mm -hmm. Um, And also that, you know, other subsequent cases, including notably Casey, didn't bring this what he called an unfocused analysis up as a problem when they were Mm -hmm. upholding Roe. Yeah. Two things I wanted to bring up was, and one is that at the, at the district court level with Roe v. Wade, Roe's attorneys argued that the Texas abortion ban violated the right to privacy quote protected by the first, fourth, fifth, ninth, and 14th amendment. So in a way, this sounds like what we often call throwing spaghetti at the wall. Yep. (laughs) Um, Which very well might have been, but yeah, it's also this thing that you're talking about where if something isn't specifically stated in the constitution, where do we find it? Mm -hmm. And the other thing I wanted to bring up is that we often talk about the 14th amendment, like the, the Roe v. Wade decision relies a lot on the 14th amendment sort of. And Mm -hmm. part of the reason for that is because when we're talking about a state law, the Supreme court has to, and other federal courts have to use the 14th Amendment as a touchstone. So going back to law school for a second, this is what we call selective incorporation, where the Supreme mm-hmm. Court will extend protections that originally only applied to the federal government, like the Bill of Rights. Yeah. So first, fourth, fifth, ninth. They use the 14th Amendment to apply that to state governments as well, because the the 14th Amendment, unlike many in the Bill of Rights, instead of saying Congress shall make no law, The 14th Amendment is a little different. It says, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So that's why we often get into this. That's why we see the 14th Amendment come up and be relied on so heavily in these cases. Yeah. And, you know, the the Roe Court lawyers did throw a bunch of noodles at the wall, and the court entertained a number of different avenues very briefly where they could possibly find this right to abortion. Maybe... Like Laura said, maybe it could be in the Ninth Amendment's reservation of the rights to the people. We have uh, episodes on the Ninth Amendment not that long ago, if our listeners are interested. Maybe it could be rooted in the First, Fourth, Fifth Amendments and then incorporated, like Laura said, into the Fourteenth Amendment due process like other Bill of Rights provisions have been. Or maybe it could be a component of liberty protected by the 14th Amendment's due process clause completely independent of the 1st, 4th, and 5th Amendments. And I guess that last one is what the Roe Court picked. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, by the time we get to the SCOTUS opinion, uh, Justice Blackmun wrote that the right to privacy has its roots in the 1st, 4th, 5th, 9th, and 14th (laughs) Amendments. And that the And then he concludes, quote, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty or the Ninth Amendment's reservation of rights to the people, it is, quote, broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate a pregnancy. So that's sort of, yeah, that was his his reasoning there. I do think it's important here to mention that Roe was not the first decision to discuss Mm -hmm. this. Uh, Mm -hmm. For sure. This this came up actually first in Griswold v. Connecticut, which was several years earlier. I think it was 1965. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's where the court first started talking about this right to privacy found uh, famously in a penumbra um, emanating from the Constitution, meaning that it wasn't any one specific pro- 
you know, amendment or mm-hmm. part of the Bill of Rights, but a lot of different amendments touched on this basic fundamental concept of a right to privacy. And Griswold v. Connecticut was the uh, birth control case where they were talking mm-hmm. about whether people have a right to birth control or not. So can you tell me, Joe, why they decided to use the word penumbra? <laughs> because I, to me, yeah. a penumbra is the partially shaded outer region of the shadow cast by an opaque object. <laughs> okay, Merriam-Webster. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that is kind of the, it's an evocative phrase. It's meant to kind of convey this uh, shadow or ghost emanating from mm-hmm. these rites. It's been often quoted from both supporters and um, anti-abortion advocates yeah, it was interesting that he chose that phrase, but that's not a legal term of art or anything like that. That's just uh, him being a little be poetic. Fan- trying to be fancy like lawyers do. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's important to acknowledge that this, like, privacy rights are, although the word is nowhere used in the Constitution, different Parts of the Constitution Bill of Rights allude to it. So uh, Justice Stewart in the Roe concurrence said, um, Justice Stewart, by the way, is like even more pro-abortion than the majority. But even he pointed out that there's no constitutional right to privacy, that the 14th Amendment protects some individual privacy from certain government intervention, sure. But it also protects a lot of other things that have nothing to do with privacy. And then you have other constitutional provisions that protect personal privacy from other government interventions. So, for example, in Stanley v. Georgia, uh, that case said that the First and Fourth Amendments established the right of privacy that protected your right to have and view pornography in your own home. And, you know, that court said, if the First Amendment means anything, it means that a state has no business telling a man sitting alone in his own house what books he may read or what films he may watch. Our whole constitutional heritage rebels at the thought of giving government the power to control men's minds. And but that sort of like First Amendment privacy, which, you know, we talked about our last episode a little bit as well. That's very different from the use of the word privacy that seems to be at play with abortion. There was um, the the Katz decision where wiretaping was deemed an invasion of privacy under the Fourth Amendment. That decision noted that, quote, the protection of a person's general right to privacy, his right to be let alone by other people, is, like the protection of his property and of his very life, left largely to the law of the individual states. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. Well, and just for reference, the Fourth Amendment is what protects us from unreasonable search and seizure Mm -hmm. by the government. Can I give a shout out to all my third amendment freaks in the house (laughs) too, in that, um, in that you deserve the right to privacy and uh, in your own home when it comes to quartering. Oh my God. (laughs) It's one of those that's like in no way relevant anymore, but it is there if we ever need it. Yeah. Well, and, and medical privacy has been recognized under the Fifth Amendment for a long time, although those cases, I think, primarily dealt with civil commitment and the choice to end medical treatment at a certain point. So it's, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's connected, but it's sort of a little different. Can we sum up really quick? Because mm-hmm. I feel like we've touched on a lot of different yeah. things mm-hmm. with uh, the history and, and Roe. Mm-hmm. So we can say that the right to privacy has been recognized in several cases, some before Roe and some after. Mm-hmm. 
The right to privacy is not mentioned in the Constitution, but several courts have recognized it in a variety of other amendments. And the reason why we talk about the 14th Amendment and substantive due process so much when we talk about Roe and abortion laws, it is because that is the amendment that uh, courts use to apply that privacy right to the states in addition to the federal government. Good sum up, Joe. Yeah, nice. that, that's where we are now. So now we can <laughs> we can move on from Roe. <laughs> Which is exactly what Justice so Alito jo- wants to do. Hey! Yay! <laughs> I quit the show. I'm out. <laughs> So yeah, Joe, you uh, we got we got Justice Alito trying to overturn a major landmark decision in Dobbs, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So this was the leaked draft, and I will say too that if you want any more information on on Roe, Laura has written an extremely great mm-hmm. summary of Roe v. Wade that is blowing up the internet, <laughs> from what I can tell. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. and made a good Thank map. You. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I also have another one on could Roe v. Roe v. Wade be overturned. So that one was yeah. good too. Yes. <laughs> so please check those out. We'll, of course, link those in the show notes. But if you want a recap of the things that we're talking about, those are great resources. But yeah, for Dobbs, you know, we, we've talked about kind of the main issues uh, that Roe was decided on. And Justice Alito basically took issue with all of them. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> We haven't talked about Casey yet. Now he's been waiting his whole life for this. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, it, and Joe has a really good uh, article about the, the main points of Alito's leak draft as well that we can link. Yeah. So the first thing to mention is this is not a final draft. I know that most people are aware of that, but it could still change. I find it highly unlikely that the main holding will change, but it is possible that some of the things that we discuss will be different. Uh, in a month or two when the final decision comes out. But ba- quick, who do you all think leaked oh, it? Oh, man. No, I, we, we, can, we can talk about <laughs> We're not. Oh, God, I don't know. Everyone's talking about that. It's politics, Andy. No one wants to go no, on the record? Really. Um, well, well <laughs> I can say to that that I think it will. I'll go on the record and say that it will be discovered. Yeah. I think I think we'll figure it out sooner or later. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll find out. I'm frankly surprised they haven't found out by now, but yeah. anyway. So Justice Alito starts off, he's heavily critical of the legal reasoning behind both Roe and its successor, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Mm-hmm. So the the fact that it does have unclear roots in the Constitution, this right to privacy and subsequently a right to control one's own pregnancy is the reason why he says, okay, we need to be careful about what we're ascribing this right to privacy or this right to liberty, because we all have our own different opinions on what it means to be free from government control. And in order to find it as a constitutional right, it has to be deeply rooted and embedded in our country's history. And that's why we started off going back through the history of abortion, because that's what Justice Alito did. So really, he kind of summarizes a lot of the things that we were talking about just now and concludes the opposite from what the majority holding in Roe and the plurality in Casey ultimately determined. 
And then he ends it on everyone's favorite legal term, stare decisis. <laughs> so it's not pronounced no. stare. I just well, want to I be mean, clear. It's... That, that, I'm, not, I'm not BSing here. I well, never it's, knew. It's, it's a dead language. Right. No one exactly. knows Exactly. I was going to say, it's all fake lawyer Latin. So we just, we, we say yeah. it however yeah. we want to. <laughs> 17 cardinals at the Vatican. Yeah. And that's about it. Oh, no. <laughs> But yeah, Vedahi, I'm actually kind of interested in, because I, 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 we've talked before about stare decisis, so I'm wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about Justice Alito's rationale for, I, w- I don't want to say ignoring stare decisis, but not letting yeah. it control the decision. Well, yeah, it's, it's a good question in general that I'm sure a lot of people have, like, why overturn longstanding precedent? Mm-hmm. Doesn't the Supreme Court have a rule against doing that willy-nilly? Well, Not quite. It's not a hard and fast rule, Mm -hmm. and it's certainly not required by the Constitution that you got to stick to your guns or stick to the guns of dead dudes in robes. (laughs) Thou stickest to thine guns. (laughs) Well, we've certainly had Supreme Court decisions that overturn Mm -hmm. prior Supreme Court decisions, like Brown versus Board of Education did that, and that was a huge, a huge case. So it's not unheard of, yeah. Yeah. No, SCOTUS and other appellate courts will revisit decisions, but as I experienced in clerking on an appellate court myself, only in the right circumstances. Mm -hmm. So they'll consider factors like workability and how old the precedent was. So Roe was 50 years old, is 50 years old, whether the decision was well-reasoned. And they'll also consider the reliance interest at stake, which just means like who would be adversely affected by an overruling because they were banking on the previous case in making decisions for themselves. Mm. So in Roe's case, a ton of not just mothers, but couples, families, they'll all have a reliance interest in the established case because some of them will have made family planning decisions around it. They'll have made career decisions around it. Maybe a woman accepted a job or a promotion with the understanding that she would be available and not need to take maternity leave. Mm-hmm. They'll even have made financial decisions around it. Maybe one of the couple decided to spend a lot of money to go to grad school, relying on not having an added huge financial burden of a child. The list goes mm-hmm. on. Well, and that reliance factor, isn't that kind of why stare decisis exists to begin with, is that we want to we want people to be able to rely on mm-hmm. on Supreme Court decisions. We want, you know, okay, when the Supreme Court says this is the thing, we want people to be able to rely on it and say, okay, then this is done now. Totally. Yeah. And 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 that's kind of what the Casey decision said when they were upholding Roe. Um, they m- didn't speak so much about Roe's reasoning, mm-hmm. but they relied a lot on stare decisis saying that women have relied on the availability of these, you know, abortion options. And, and that's important. That's a, that's society established reliance. Now, I don't want to get my own opinion out there too much because this is not, we're, we're trying to keep those separate. Um, but there are time, there's a time and place to overturn precedent mm-hmm. for sure. And, and the Supreme Court has has seen to that. Now, Alito's treatment of stare decisis, obviously, the, the Dobbs decision does not abide by stare decisis. And so you'd normally want to ensure that they're doing that for a good reason. 
Now, this whole controversy is not about any one judge. It's not about Alito. Because I will just know that he and, you know, Chief Justice Roberts as well, they both emphasized how important they thought following stare decisis was in their confirmation hearings Mm -hmm. to the court. Mm -hmm. Roberts stressed that overruling a case should be reserved for exceptional circumstances Mm -hmm. where a decision has proved clearly unworkable over time. Mm But honestly, neither of them have really stuck to that philosophy, Uh, notably in the case of Gonzalez v. Carhartt, um, which was a 5-4 decision that upheld the constitutionality of a federal law prohibiting partial birth abortions, even though seven years before that, in Stenberg v. Carhartt, the court had struck down a virtually identical law on the state level as unconstitutional without offering any principled basis for ignoring the earlier decision. Um, The only thing that changed there in those seven years was that Justice O'Connor was swapped out for Alito. And O'Connor wasn't the most liberal judge, but she was more abortion friendly than Alito. And here again, we don't really have any real change in facts or circumstances Mm -hmm. between, you know, from from Bro and Casey, except the makeup of the court. And so that brings me to the point made in Casey. Um, Casey kind of Alito calls out Casey for sticking to stare decisis without necessarily supporting the reasoning of Roe. But Casey distinguishes the abortion slash like post Roe line of cases from other cases that have overturned established precedent, um, as Laura alluded to, namely Brown v. Board, Mm -hmm. which everyone should be familiar with. If you're not, come on, folks, (laughs) do your civic duty. Come on. All right. Don't I'm not going to talk about Brown v. Board. I know. I know. But I feel like we don't need to get into Brown v. We don't have time. Yeah. But also, there is a, a West Coast Hotel v. Parrish, which overturned the famous case of Lochner v. New York. For those who aren't familiar, the Lochner line of cases was uh, very corporate friendly and had been striking down laws trying to regulate businesses, which included minimum wage legislation. And the conservative majority in Lochner had also discussed liberties under the 14th Amendment also. But instead of abortion, they focused on the freedom of contract, which was apparently impeding efforts by legislators to protect workers as well as consumers. And so when Parrish overturned the Lochner precedent, it upheld minimum wage laws. And the Casey majority said that in the abortion line of cases, That was different from the civil rights cases like in Brown v. Board or the business and workers' rights cases based on the freedom to contract because the latter two expanded rights. Um, So, like, you you could point to so many other landmark SCOTUS cases that have since been overturned. So, like, just to name a few examples... You know how you can't get expelled for not saying the pledge or saluting the flag? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you used to be able to until a 1943 case Barnett overturned an earlier one where the court said you could. You know how you have the right to do what all of y'all are doing right now? Remaining silent? (laughs) Miranda rights. Miranda rights. Not a thing. (laughs) Not a thing until Miranda v. Arizona overruled earlier cases saying you didn't have that right. Mm Can't afford an attorney for your criminal cases? Guess what? The government will pay for that one because Gideon v. Wainwright overruled cases saying, T.S., you're on your own. Um, What's the pattern you guys notice here? Expansion of rights? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) 
I promise you, I, I could spend the rest of the podcast just going through this list, yeah. but since I don't think you want me to do that, um, you're going to have to take my well, word. That's a pretty mm, good list. That basically every single decision almost that I could find that overturns a landmark SCOTUS mm-hmm. case is going in one direction, expanding rights to people, individuals. Mm-hmm. And Andy, I'm bracing myself for you to say corporations are people too <laughs> in response to the Lochner overruling. Hey, corporations are people too, <laughs> oh, my <gosh>. friend. <laughs> Um, Shout out to all the Mitt Romney fans. I mean, that's that's kind of a good thing to bring up, though, because we're talking about competing interests, right? Corporate interests or the freedom to contract in the Lochner case versus the individual employee's interest. And similarly, with abortion, we have competing interests of the mother and the state. Sure. I do want to quick go back to your discussion of stare decisis, Mm -hmm. um, because I do feel like Even though it may change, we should at least briefly mention what Justice Alito argues in Dobbs for stare decisis. So Mm -hmm. he argues several things that um, justify, in his opinion at least, justify ignoring stare decisis, despite what you were talking about, Vedahi, in that it it does seem a little different than a look at historical cases would would lead us to suggest. So one, he says that um, stare decisis is at its weakest when interpreting the Constitution. Mm -hmm. This is because it's very hard, of course, to amend the Constitution. It doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. You know, the way things are going, it may never happen again. (laughs) Um, And so he says it's important that when the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution, they get it right. And so stare decisis has less of a priority in that case. Um, He does point to a lot of these cases. He doesn't mention what you pointed out about the expansion versus the retraction of rights. Um, But he does point to like Brown v. Board and says some of the court's most well-respected and well known opinions are decisions that overturn past presidents. That's obviously a controversial position for him to take, and um, we won't get into that here, but that's that's a contested statement that he's made that that's been you can read about, you know, arguments to that elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you mentioned workability, Vedahi, mm-hmm. and Justice Alito suggests that Casey's holding is largely unworkable Mm -hmm. and that it's diluted the strict standard for facial constitutional challenges in other cases. So that's kind of a list of reasons why he's saying stare decisis should not be respected here. Um, You could go through that and argue each point individually. You certainly can find that there'll be people who wholeheartedly support each of those statements and there will be people who wholeheartedly disagree with all of those statements um so those are just the the arguments that he offered that you you dear listener can decide what to do with (laughs) yourself yeah that was a lot uh so we've we've covered sort of the the base the historical basis of roe roe itself why it seems the that there's likely that the majority of the supreme court is going to overturn it Next time, we're going to get into a little bit more speculative territory where we're going to talk about... Wild speculation is I what know. I do best. It's going to be, it's going to be a very <laughs> Andy-heavy episode. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. We, we've all got things. The extensions of this case, other, other cases relating to privacy rights and how they might be impacted by an overturn of Roe 
So tune in next time for that. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com. Meat. Meat, Meat. city. <laughs> but wait, so, isn't Veda he a vegetarian? You, oh, no. Yeah, I'm I shouldn't a, have said I'm meat. That's, a flexitarian. Oh, okay. So okay. I participate in communal meat sharing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, I wish good. you wouldn't call it that, though. <laughs> yes. Uh, not appetizing. Anyway, moving on.